further. Well, this morning, uh, I recognize that there are a few people who might be here for the first time in a long time. Uh, it's good seeing old friends and familiar faces, new faces alike. And so I want to provide a brief recap as we come to Psalm 119. As you may recall, we are in the middle, uh, really actually at the end now, of a three-part series going through what I've been calling the ABCs of the Christian life. Now, if you may recall, Psalm 119 is actually an acrostic poem. It goes through each of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, two weeks ago, we covered Aleph, or A, if you will. Last week was Beth, or B. And this week, uh, we're actually skipping all the way over to G, uh, because the third letter is actually G in the Hebrew alphabet, called Gimel. Gimel. As a way of just recapping, though, what we've actually been covering the last few weeks, the first Sunday in our series, we talked mainly from the first part, verses 1 through 8, Aleph, about the focus of primarily seeing the need for a steadfast loyalty toward God as we approach this thing called the Christian life. Last week, we can kind of then coupled it up along with the following verses, verses 9 through 16, as we then talked about the necessity of both grace and faith in the Christian life, or what I called blessing and devotion. All of those blessings that we saw there in the previous eight verses, along with all of those I will statements. I will blank, I will blank, I will. We saw the psalmist go essentially from this rudimentary idea of the faith, you know, this devotedness unto God, to then grace and faith, recognizing that those things sustain us. And here in this third section of Gimel, the next eight verses, the very last one in our series, we're going to be looking here in Psalm 119, verses 17 through 24, in regard to the way that the Lord himself sustains us as we continue to mature and grow in our faith. How does the Lord himself sustain us? Well, here, principally speaking, in Gimel, this third section of Psalm 119, we see two major facets of this psalm. The first thing we see in the first four verses, this idea of God as being the author of all of life, generally speaking. But then the final four verses, we're going to see how he is the one who is not only the author of life, but also the keeper of our lives. In other words, the one who safeguards and who protects us throughout all of life. And yet we find in a very personal way that this truth, that God himself is both the author of life and the keeper of our lives, is so vitally important for us as we approach the word of God. And not only that, but as we actually go about all of life, so why might that be? Why are those two truths that God is the author and keeper of our lives so important for us on a daily basis? Well, to use an analogy, it'd be like going throughout uh, a grocery store without your wallet in hand. If you can imagine, I'm sure if you're like me, you probably have done this before, but you go around picking out all kinds of things that you like in the store, picking and choosing whatever you like, and yet then going out to the checkout line and realizing you weren't in the right to buy anything in the first place for you don't even have the money in hand. Or to use another analogy, it would be like boating along an unknown, uncharted water and getting lost along the way. 
realizing that you thought you knew better. You thought you knew the waters, but you in turn didn't really have the chart or the compass in hand that you needed to get to where you were going. In the same way, without the very precious word of God given to us, we are like people who shop around without the goods to actually buy anything in life. We are also like someone who is, again, boating out without a chart or a compass in hand, lost. And both of these points of confusion lead us to a place of residual emptiness in life without the word of God. Or at the very least, a sense of frustration, anger even, toward going about life without the precious word of God sustaining us and guarding us and keeping us. So in these same ways, we're going to see these two themes developed here. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we too, even as believers, still continually, in many ways, face those feelings of residual emptiness when we try to do life without the author and giver of life in the first place. We also still, even as believers, feel frustrated at times when we try to go about life without leaning and depending upon the precious word of God. And so it's fitting for us in this very third section of Psalm 119, verses 17 through 24, to come to this with a servant-like humility, recognizing that we ourselves are so utterly lost and confused about how to go about life unless the word of God directs us. I think it's fitting that as we approach this psalm this morning, as we are about to read here from Psalm 119, verses 17 through 24, that we recognize that this psalm is one that instructs us in the path that we should take, the one that we should lean upon, namely Christ. So as we read of this, I would encourage us to hear of Christ, to read of his salvation, and to seek him diligently through this psalm. Uh, as you have turned in your copies of God's word to Psalm 119, verse 17, the word of God declares to us the following. It says this, Deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law, for I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me, for my soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. But you rebuke the insolent, accursed ones, the ones who wander far from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. That's the word of God. Praise be to him. Let's uh, come before him in prayer as we dive into today's sermon. Lord Jesus, we recognize that you are the author and giver of life and that therefore the world praises you. We recognize, Father, though, that as we have approached your word, we are a needy people, one who often tries to go about this life apart from your direction that you give us through your word. We often try to go about picking and choosing things making decisions apart from you, going about our lives in such a way that only leads us to despair and confusion when devoid of your word, which is life-giving. 
And so, Father, we ask that as we read this psalm, as we chew on this for a while here in this time, that you, O Christ, would be exalted. We ask, God, that you would be the one who is front and center as your word is proclaimed, that you yourself would be the one who gives us life through your word, and that you would so restore us and refresh us through this word that is preached. May your spirit be the one who guides us into all knowledge, who guards our thoughts, and who implants this precious word concerning you, O Christ, into our lives. And so we ask this in your holy and majestic name. Amen. Well, church, uh, growing up, I myself was an avid reader. I'm sure many of you are also in the same boat, that you probably read just tons of mystery novels and all kinds of fictional works. I found myself, though, as a kid, coming back over and over and over again to certain novels by people like Frank Peretti, you know, horror stories and thrillers alike. Uh, authors also like J.R.R. Tolkien, you know, The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and those kind of series, but also works by C.S. Lewis, one of my absolute favorite authors. What was interesting is that, um, for me, C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, though, just took the cake. Out of all of the books and all the series that I read over and over again, nothing seemed to quite compare with the Chronicles of Narnia. It was just one of those books that I would continually come back to and read and glean more and more and more from every time. And even as a kid, I realized some of those analogies for you know, the fact that Aslan was the Christ-like figure and that he himself was the one who led his people through their sufferings and through their trials to a land of glory. I saw all that as a kid in small part, but even as an adult in recent years, as I've come back and reread some of those children's novels even, they began to make so much more sense to me. I mean, in light of seeing God's gracious providence in my own life in various ways, as we all have as believers, I came back to this book and to this series with a more mature understanding of what Lewis might have been getting at in the first place. But imagine if you had the opportunity to actually meet with one of your favorite authors for a solid hour or so. Let's say they were still around and you had the chance to grab a cup of coffee with them or lunch and just share a good amount of time picking their brain and asking any question that you wanted of them. What kind of things might you ask if you were in that position? Now, whether you would ask them all kinds of questions, you know, what does this analogy mean or what does that mean? What were you thinking when you wrote this part of the book? <laughs> I'm so confused by this one. What do you mean by that even? Or if you simply just took in the experience for what it was and just enjoyed their company, I'm sure that as you returned then to the book or the series that you loved so much, you would never come back to that series with the same sense of mind. Your mind, as you would read it, would just be enlivened by that experience with the author himself. Well, such is the very perspective of the writer of Psalm 119. He's someone who comes to this place, of course, under the inspiration of God himself, but from a place of experience and maturity, of that life experience that teaches through the thick and the thin in life. 
He's one who does not, as we talked about last week, here focus on, you know, how can a young man keep his way pure, the elementary things of the Christian life, but rather here he now focuses, again, not on young manhood, but upon maturity, upon the seasoned life of a believer who has learned from experience. And so he writes this section, Gimel, from that same point of view, one who has been experienced, tried, and tested in their faith throughout the course of their life. He is now one, in other words, who has known the bounty of God's dealings with him, his kind providence, through both the trials and the good times alike. But he's also known the utter desolation of the offerings of the entire world in comparison to the riches that are in Christ himself. This is why, looking at our own psalm right here, in verse 17, he says, and he really cries out this statement unto God, deal bountifully with your servant, so that I may keep your word, and that I may live. To paraphrase this, he essentially is saying, God, do good to me, so that I will live. Or if you were to put it in the reverse, Lord, if you do not deal bountifully to me, someone who is your servant, how else can I live? To whom else can I even go? Friends, can you visualize the posture of someone who is writing such things as this? A place of utter dependency that this person is finding themselves in. Can you picture that as well? Someone who is speaking these words, who has postured himself low in the dust and has essentially said, God, I am suffering. I'm going through all kinds of hardship, which we read of here in this psalm, and yet I still am clinging and choose to cling to your goodness to sustain me. See, friends, it's from this very posture of humility, a posture that comes to God with an empty hand, that God reveals his blessing to this person here. But the psalmist's composure is characterized, nevertheless, by someone who has nothing to bring before God, but with a hope that he has everything in God to receive. He says again, do essentially the greatest good to your servant. This statement reminds me in so many ways, this idea of do good to your servant of even one of our past series just a few months ago. Immediately as I was looking over this psalm, this phrase popped out at me, do good to your servant, as being such a wonderful reminder of the book of Ruth, one of our series from a few months ago. If you recall in chapter three of Ruth, Ruth comes up to Boaz and essentially says, do good to me, your servant, do good. She was one who basically flung herself upon Boaz as the redeemer and said essentially, I will lay down my life and my livelihood upon your sheer mercy and undue kindness toward me as my kinsman redeemer. So we as believers are called as well, like this psalm prescribes for us, to emulate this same posture of humility before God, a mindful subordination before the loving kindness of God our savior. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live. To use another analogy from the New Testament this time even, 
Think of the parable of the prodigal son. The son who was so wayward in his thinking, even essentially saying to his father, I wish you were dead. To me, you are already as good as dead, and I wish for you to be completely far away from me. He pursued all the riches of the world and yet found himself to be devoid of meaning, purpose, life that his father gave him. And so, wooed by the loving kindness of his father, he came back, recognizing that even to be considered a servant of his father would be better than being in no relationship with him at all. And so similarly, we ourselves are right in understanding our place as servants of God, as people who come to God saying, again, deal bountifully, deal good with me, your servant. But the glory of God is this, that it doesn't just leave us there in a place of servanthood before God. See, like Boaz, who redeemed Ruth, who showed her great favor and brought her into his own household, God the Father shows us that love through his son. Like the father in the prodigal son parable, he also brings us in and offers atonement for our own sin and shortcomings on behalf of us by the way of another person, namely Christ. Friends, when you think of these things, though, it brings us to a place of, again, humility. It brings us to a place of recognizing that apart from the Lord's bounty, we have no good. He says this in verse 18, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Here he's recognizing this utter dependency upon God, who is the opener of eyes to deal bountifully with him. This idea is even where we get the, uh, the old ancient Irish hymn, Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart, not be all else to me, save that thou art. That comes right from this very psalm. For the psalmist here recognizes that unless the Lord himself opens our eyes, unless the Lord, again, deals bountifully with us, we will not live and we will not live as we ought. In other words, the Lord himself must be the one, as the author of all of life, who gives us spiritual sight, opening our eyes. The Lord himself is the one who must do this, to tend to us in our desert wanderings. For who of us can venture out on our own and find worth in the labor that is set before us or the enjoyments of this life unless it is set before God himself, unless our way is in line with the way of the Lord through his word. As such, the psalmist goes on to say this, essentially saying, I am a sojourner or a wanderer upon this earth, so hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You know, when you hear the word sojourner, what comes to your mind immediately? Sojourner, a vagabond, someone who is traveling without cause or purpose, perhaps. 
See, like one who is traveling somewhere without quite knowing what the outcome is, a sojourner or a vagabond, a nomad, I venture to say that all of us have felt like this before in our own lives. Perhaps even in recent months or during 2020, a year that was troubling for all of us in various ways, you felt like a sojourner, like a wanderer, without purpose, without an end to this lostness. Having worked with uh, college students and youth since 2009, I've heard statements such as the following so many times over. These statements have to do everything with lostness. Things like this, uh, you know, I'm not sure where the Lord is leading me. I feel lost. I just want to know his will. I don't know what God's will is for my life. Or perhaps even from a place of discontentment, man, I wish he'd just give me a sign and make it clear to me. Where is God leading me? Over the years, I've realized that all of us, again, can relate to these questions. These questions of what is God doing in my life? Where is he taking me? And again, perhaps you can relate. For each one of these questions is so valid. These feelings are normal for us as believers. The feeling of lostness or confusion or frustration when things don't seem to go our way. But scripture itself tends to this normal way of thinking by telling us that we are indeed sojourners. 1 Peter 1, for instance, says that we were essentially and are spiritual exiles, people who've been persecuted, who have been put through trial and tribulation, who are even considered exiles and separated from the culture around us as believers. And yet 1 Peter 1 goes on to say this, that we are people who feel this because we have been ransomed from the feudal ways that were inherited by our forefathers. In other words, we feel the sojourning, we feel the wandering, even as believers, what in the world is going on, those moments because we were not made to feel peace here in this earth fully. We, of course, live in a world that is just riddled with sin, and sin especially against believers. And so it's normal for us to feel this weight of our exile, the weight of our sojourning, like the psalmist says in Psalm 119. Even our Lord Jesus in Matthew, Matthew 8, verse 20, shared that same sentiment that he himself felt like an exile. Matthew 8, verse 20, in there, Christ says this, foxes have dens and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Our Lord himself upon this earth felt like a sojourner. Similarly, our psalmist here in Psalm 119, verse 19, says without reservation then, without any kind of hint of, of reservation, I, in fact, am a sojourner upon the earth. I am this. But notice immediately the resolve to this tension that he brings up. The resolve to this is a hopefulness. Right in response to that verse, verse 19, I am a sojourner, he says, so hide not your commandments from me, for my soul longs for your rules. 
Essentially what he's saying is that apart from the rule of God, apart from his commandments to keep his way set and fixed along the path of righteousness, that sojourning, that spirit of exile, that feeling of lostness will continue. But when set upon the precious word of God, the lamp to our feet and the light to our path, there will be direction in life. Thinking about the changing of seasons going on around us even this morning, as I woke up along with probably many of you to hearing the sounds of thunder and lightning all around, uh, just seeing everything just drenched in rain and being reminded that spring is almost here, spring is coming. Um, I'm reminded though of the feeling of winter, the feeling of winter that often relates to us as the idea of death, a time of life where everything just seems to hunker down and even die away for a while. But to use an analogy here, like those plants that lie dormant throughout the dead of winter, it is normal for us ourselves like those to feel the dryness and the unfulfilled desires of perfect love, joy, and peace here in this life. We may feel in different seasons like those dormant or even dead plants at times, but there is life that is coming. We still feel, however, the weight of sin, for we live in a world that is yet riddled with a very present and real darkness one in which the light of Christ is yet still advancing upon the deadness of our lives. Or to use an illustration again from the Chronicles of Narnia, think of the book The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, if you've read that, where Aslan has been brought back to life, and wherever he goes, life begins to again spring up as he breathes the breath of life back upon these dead things. In the same way, we have Christ as our Savior who through the advancement of his gospel will bring life and direction to us as believers and so give life. Soon, friends, that eternal spring that we long for will indeed come. And even now, we are bearing spiritual fruit as we choose to keep God's law, to safeguard it with our lives. For God is the author of life, and he is the one who will surely change the seasons that we face and bring the death of winter to an end at the coming of Christ our King. And so we wait in the meanwhile, seeking the beauty, the bounty of God himself, learning day by day that Christ alone is our treasure, the one to be sought after. For his word, the word concerning Jesus, is our chart. It is our compass we learn that according to that, God's word, we will have direction in life. Well, friends, this brings us to our second part of this morning's sermon, that God is not only the author of life, but he's also the keeper of our lives. And we see this in verses 21 through 24. I mean, for as much as we might believe this truth that God will guard us, we can't help but ask, well, how will God guard us? How will God keep us and protect us? We know from scripture, namely in Hebrews 12, verse 2, that Jesus is both the author and the perfecter of our faith. 
He is not only the one who saved us upon the cross once for all time, but he is the one who is even now in the present day fitting us unto glory by the work of his spirit. He is again the author of life, but also the keeper of our lives. He is the one who's perfecting us, his saints, through the washing of his word over us. And what's curious is that the way that Christ has chosen to sustain us, his church, now, even right here in this very moment as his word is delivered concerning him, the way that he has chosen to fit us for glory is by using his precious word as an ointment to our souls, by giving it to us in such a way that as we go through life, we will be safeguarded and so led by it. As his spirit impresses these truths upon us day by day whenever we face trials and tribulations. When I think of these moments of weakness, though, uh, I realize that every single one of us have probably faced a sense of, uh, again, feeling that weakness. Each one of us ourselves have faced those times where even though we've been fed by God's sustaining grace, we've heard the preached word, we've received the sacrament, we've even believed these things, we find ourselves going throughout our week recognizing that we, our faith itself, is so weak. It reminded me immediately as I was thinking of this truth a while back that the Apostle Paul, a man of great faith and a servant's heart before God himself, also felt the same weight of weakness. In 2 Corinthians 12, he expresses that truth that he felt so weak. He felt so weak spiritually, he could barely even go on as he faced all the struggles of the soul in this life. And yet God answered him in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, with these following words of life. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul made it his resolve to boast, as he goes on to say, all the more gladly of his weaknesses so that the power of Christ would rest upon him. Friends, if you get to know any seasoned believer, not just the Apostle Paul, but people in life around us, any seasoned believer who has suffered much for the cause of Christ, and yet has continued to remain steadfast in that, you will hear a common thread throughout their stories. You will hear the story of sin, or perhaps slander that has been said against them. You will hear of things that are short of nothing than spiritual harassment to those who have suffered for the cause of Christ. And yet you will also hear the flip side, that in Christ, the mercies of God never cease to daily tend them in the midst of the fight. Thinking of a couple examples here, my favorite hero of the faith, J. Gerson Machen, who was the one who taught at Princeton Seminary and formed Westminster Seminary about 100 years ago now, he himself was verbally harassed by fellow ministers in the mainline denomination of his own day for holding fast to the truth of Christ as God, true God and true man. He held fast to the virgin birth of Christ, the fundamentals of the faith, the resurrection of Christ bodily from the dead and the life that is in him alone And for all these things, he was persecuted, essentially. Even defrocked of his position as a pastor within his own mainline denomination. 
but he yet continued on. If you ever were to get the chance to read, uh, as I have over the years, some of his personal letters and correspondences, you'll read uh, of this prevailing truth that just continued to help him press forward in the midst of the hardship. This prevailing truth that he wrote about often, that Christ loved him and Christ gave himself for him. So even in the midst of that persecution, he leaned upon these things. Another famous uh, preacher, Charles Spurgeon, another wonderful, gifted preacher of the word of God, was himself also harassed even in his own day and age. In the mid-1800s, he was harassed by the main publication in London as being falsely a womanizer, someone who would uh, take advantage of women improperly. And yet, of course, these things were proven in time to be not true and complete and utter lies. And yet you can probably imagine the shame that Spurgeon felt as a pastor who felt just so deflated by these lies that were being flung up against him. Again, in time, these falsities proved to be untrue, but it was in that same time that he wrote such famous lines in his commentaries, such as one of my favorite quotes of his, where he says this, in spite of these things, I have learned to kiss the wave that strikes me against the rock of ages. Even here in his commentary on Psalm 119, verses 21 through 24, the second half of our passage, Spurgeon wrote the following from a place of experience, from a place of undue suffering. He said, a good conscience, in spite of these things, is the best security for a good name. Reproach will not abide with those who abide in Christ. Neither will contempt remain upon those who remain faithful to the ways of the Lord. Another example is King David, someone who suffered. Someone who wrote many of the Psalms that we know and love under the inspiration of the scripture from a place of deep suffering and pain. Someone who recognized the spiritual warfare that had been placed upon him and the real adversity of God's and his own enemies. And finally, Christ, the Lord himself, our Lord, was himself foretold by the prophet Isaiah to be a man of sorrows, so well acquainted with grief, one who was not esteemed as God for who he was. For as the writer of Hebrews says, and we can take heart in this truth though, that though he was the man of sorrows, we do not then have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. Church, as those who are in Christ, we are not above, as individuals, these examples, but we have in Christ one who has gone before us, one who knows the suffering that you face, one who knows the grievances that you have held onto in your own soul. He knows that you feel, like this psalmist in Psalm 119, like a sojourner who has had to deal with insolent, accursed ones, people who wander far from the commandments of God with scorn and contempt and all of these things that he talks about, the plotting of princes, all kinds of evils done against him. 
And yet again, we have in Christ an advocate who speaks over us. And we have an answer in Christ in our defense. So here again, the word of God in Psalm 119, verses 21 through 23. And look for the promise here. You, O God, you rebuke the insolent, accursed ones, the ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. This is a hopeful psalm. It's a hopeful psalm that deals with suffering in a very honest way and yet rests upon the goodness and the bounty of Christ to get him through these things. So friends, I have some words of encouragement for you as we begin to close. If you have known the reproach of Christ in this life, if you can identify with his sufferings and have ever felt the crushing weight of sin that has been done against you, or even your own sin that you have harbored in your own heart and have come to Christ for forgiveness with, then take heart. Take heart. Because we have in Christ one who has overcome the world. We have Christ as our healer, our advocate, our answer. We have one who will never break a bruised reed or put out a smoldering wick. Rather, Christ is one who deals with us gently, with love and with care and compassion. And so whatever scorn or contempt or plotting against the very bride of Christ that we may face even as individuals or as a church in the years to come, none of these things will prevail against us if we are in Christ. None of these things will succeed. Every weapon that has been fashioned against the bride of Christ will fail. The church will stand victorious at the end of the age. And in the meantime, when you, as a son or daughter of God through Christ, feel the hurt of the sinfulness of sin, meditate upon the unchanging statutes of God in Christ that are given to you and spoken over you in love. For the judge of all the earth, he will do what is right. Pray unto God in the meantime with fervency when you feel downcast. For God will remove the effect of sin in the present time, or at least the sting of it, with his own hand. Church, as we begin to conclude, the final, more positive (laughs) application for us this morning is this. That we would delight in the word of Christ. For it is our sustenance. May we be a church who are counseled by Christ's grace. Grace in every moment, which is always sufficient for us here, now. Continue to hold fast hope in the midst of the sufferings that you face as a believer in Christ. For God will provide a way through these present sufferings. Like relying upon a chart to get through the clearing of a very thick forest. Know that he will bring you out of that. He will, by his chart or compass, the very scripture itself, bring you through the place of despair that you face and into the light of his grace. For he goes before you. 
He is a shield and a salvation about you. And know this gospel truth, as we read before from Psalm 23, that even in the presence of your enemies, church, in their very presence, he will nevertheless anoint your head with oil. He will make your cup overflow. And so surely goodness and mercy shall follow you all the days of your life. And you shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. With that in mind, let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have in you sustenance. We have in you a chart and a compass, one who leads us, who leads us through the valley of the shadow of death, who leads us to a place of bounty, even in the midst of those things. We thank you, Father, that in no matter what we find ourselves in, whether it be the highest of joys or the lowest of lows, we have you, the unchanging Lord over all, as our friend and as our guide. God, we thank you that you've given us your holy word, which is our guide, which by your spirit is illuminated and spoken to us, implanted within our hearts, that we might know you and so see you and so savor you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for this time of worship where we have been able to open your word and that you have used it to relate these powerful truths that you are our author and our keeper. And so, Lord, we ask that you would continue to work out this grace into our lives, the very grace of Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.